Before we begin, we would like to let friends know that Ohio Yearly Meeting will be holding its annual sessions 8th month 2nd through 8th month 7th. We are delighted to have visitors either on Zoom or in person, but one must register regardless of the forum. To register, contact Sharon Holmes, whose email address is included in the podcast description. Keep within, and when they say, look here or look, there is Christ, go not forth, for Christ is within you. This is the Greek Bible study. We are reading the Gospel according to Mark, and this is session 21, and we left off in chapter 11. And we'll start with verse 27 of chapter 11. Again, they came to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Answer me. They argued with one another. If we say, from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But, shall we say, of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. As you recall, the Jews had a rite of baptism, which was like a rite of initiation. But what was unusual about the rite that John the Baptist had was it was a baptism of repentance to indicate a complete change in a transformation of the person, and which is the same baptism of repentance that Jesus then The thing I'm not clear myself on is what were they trying to catch him on by asking him what authority he was doing, what he was doing. That is, Jesus' preaching and miracles too. Would it be that if he said it was by human authority, then they would turn him into the Romans for being a revolutionary? And if he said that it was by divine authority, then they would say that he was being blasphemous? I can see the second possibly that they might say he's being blasphemous. What Karen said makes sense because often the authorities, the Jewish authorities, were trying to catch him. Once more, I am impressed with what a skilled debater he was and how, how he, I mean, his excellent rhetorical and logical skills and avoiding getting trapped. Think of when they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar. I'm sure there are a number of others also, but he really could hold his own. I'm sure the Roman Empire was a pretty, I guess in modern times it would be considered a real dictatorship. And it was, the, of course, the biggest empire in the Western world. Is there anything else to say about this passage? Okay, I think we can go on. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. 
Some they beat and others they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd. So they left him and went away. I have a comment, and maybe it's a question. Uh-huh. Twice I'm seeing the phrase that they were afraid of the people and of the different translations. Uh, I don't see much variance there. What verse is it? Verse 12, have them rusted, but they were afraid of the people. And then earlier, verse 32 of chapter 11. And I guess I want to understand the politics of it a little better. The authorities here, were they always having to do a, a delicate dance between staying in favor with the Romans and keeping their legitimacy with, with the, the, the ordinary people? We'll talk about that in the next passage, because that's okay. exactly where it comes up right after this. Yeah, I mean, in both cases, you know, it's, it's fear of, but it's fear of the crowd. I'm just assuming they see Jesus as a great prophet. The crowds do, just like John the Baptist. And I would think the local authorities are aware of that and just don't want to have some kind of uprising or something, which then would cause the Romans to come in and cause even more problems in that particular situation. Anyone remember, I've mentioned this word, parabole. This is the Greek word that gets translated as comparison. And that's the word we just transliterated right from the Greek and say parable, but it literally, it means comparison. So Jesus is always speaking in comparisons. It's interesting because they understand what he's referring to in terms of the, the vineyard is Israel and all of the slaves. Now, if you remember the word slave, doulos, so often in the Bible, Paul and others called themselves slaves of God. And this, I assume, was also true of the ancient prophets in the Old Testament. They were slaves to God, you know, slaves to a God of love, of justice, mercy. And so the reference probably is to all the ancient prophets of Israel, who in one way or another had some fairly horrible things happen to them over time. And what I think the comparison here is that Jesus is comparing them to the people that killed all these slaves, all these prophets, as well as even a son, a son of God. And they understood the comparison. So in this case, there isn't actually any reason for him to expect them to respect his son. He couldn't have expected that, but he did say that here. Of course, you would expect in real life, you would think they would respect the son of the owner. You know, if they're not going to respect others, they may still respect that person. When it says, they will respect my son, how is that in Greek? Could that be taken as they ought to? Give me a verse number. Uh, six. Six. Intrapason titan huyanmu. They will respect my son. Yeah, that looks pretty much it. Well, the parable speaks of the owner of the vineyard was God. 
Right. And he sent prophets, and they didn't accept the prophets and did nasty things to them. And then the son Jesus was sent, and they thought maybe they would do better with him, but he was saying they weren't doing any better. If anything, they were doing worse. If they kill the son, then they'll get the vineyard for themselves. I think this was aimed at the elite in the Jewish society, not the common people. Yes, he's correct. And Jesus was anticipating what would happen to him, that he would be killed. I'm trying to remember. I, I think it's in Hebrews chapter 10, where there's a comment about all of the prophets had ended up kind of in a difficult situation, how they died. Yes, if you go to the end of chapter 11, this has to do with the faith of all these earlier prophets and others. Okay, what, well, 35. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better, so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. I think in the next section, we'll probably talk more about what David's question was. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Now, you've got these two groups. The Pharisees, you could say, were more patriotic Jews than the Herodians, who perhaps being in the service of King Herod, who of course was allowed to be king because the Roman emperor said he could be king, were much more in collaboration with the Roman government, the Roman Empire. So, you know, you've got two different sides here, opposing sides. One more pro-Israel, one more pro-Rome. And I could also mention the Sadducees, too, were perhaps a bit more pro-Rome also, but they're not mentioned until the next section. So these two opposing groups asking him a question, and both want to see how he answers it in terms of one way or the other, he's going to upset or see if they can catch him one way or the other. And and they feel pretty sure they can. He says, yes, we should pay the taxes to Rome. Then he's going to make all the patriotic Jews upset. And if he says no, then of course Rome will arrest Jesus just for that kind of horrible thought that he wouldn't pay taxes to Rome. But Jesus, I think, outwitted both of them in such a sharp way. I always feel this is one of the most amazing answers you could give. Give the emperor the things that are the emperors and to God the things that are God's. Of course, this is absolutely true. 
And the implication is, of course, that we understand that what belongs to God is more important than what belongs to any government or state or country or administration. But he's answered this so that neither side could catch him on something. And that's why the crowds were just amazed that he gave such a wonderful answer. My mind is suddenly jumping back 50 years to the uh, Vietnam era and doing a lot of counseling with young men as to how they would deal with the draft. We originally called it CO, Conscientious Objection Counseling, but actually we were familiar with the whole selective service system. Question frequently was thrown at pacifists. Well, doesn't it say in the Bible that you're supposed to do what the government says? Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's conveniently forgetting the second half of that. And to the Jewish audience, he doesn't have to spell out what it is that belongs to God. I think they all knew that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. <laughs> and that doesn't leave a lot of room for Caesar to claim sovereignty. So it is remarkably comforting, both the content of it and, and the process of knowing that we don't have to be entrapped by those who would set us up. Unfortunately, I think for many people in our society, they see equivalency between God and their country. So many people are quite willing to amend or whatever in, in so many past wars to get drafted and to go kill for their country. There's a huge ignorance almost or a forgetting of all the words of Jesus and actions of Jesus. Love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you your enemies love in the sense of the golden rule, do unto them as you would have them do unto you. Quakers have historically, in terms of even self-defense, mentioned how Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane told his followers to put down their weapons when the Roman army was arresting him. In that time, there was no distinction between police and army. It was just the Roman army who had both functions. Friends have mentioned that too as clearly a case of they weren't to use violence to defend themselves. You find that in a number of Quaker writings. It seems like people are convinced to go into the military because they're convinced that they're defending their relatives and other innocent people. It's not that they're defending themselves so much, but and once it's put that way, it's harder for them to resist. All the propaganda is very, very powerful in all the reasons they give. That's why the word church, ecclesia, let me go to that. This is the word for church, or at least the word that most often gets translated as church. And the root of this word, the K-L-E, that's related to an English word, and it basically means call. And the E-K means out of. Now, this word had been used for a long time in ancient Greek, and the ecclesia was the group of free men in cities like Athens that were called out and made decisions and were separated from the rest of the city in terms of being this congregation, this special group that was called out. Now, with regard to the church, this kind of congregation of Christians was understood to be those who are called out of the world called out of worldly thinking, worldly ways. So you get this ecclesia in this sense. Is that clear? Yes, and it's completely lost today. Oh yeah. I remember the days of Vietnam too. I had my struggles with that. I was not a Quaker then. I knew nothing about Quaker theology and beliefs. Although I did see a Quaker for some counseling. I remember him, I don't remember his name. 
uh, this was at the Cambridge Friends meeting in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I recall because he looked like a young Benjamin Franklin. He had a long ponytail. He gave me good information, but I was mostly aware of that already. I was in graduate school at that time. I think it's really important to think about how powerful worldly influences are on all of us at all times from just growing up in any culture. It can be a bit different if someone has lived in different cultures as they've been growing up. They have a broader sense of those things, but for, for most of us, it takes some thinking to think outside of the box because everyone around us may be saying it's okay to do something. When in actuality, if the Spirit of Christ starts speaking to you and saying, oh, no, maybe this isn't right, then you're going to be in an unusual situation where you're really going to be in opposition to the, I guess we call it the Weltanschauung, the, the worldview of everybody around you. You may be alone there, but I don't think you're alone if you have Christ with you, supporting you. I've often heard missionaries say how much problem it is coming back to the United States after being gone for maybe four or five years and adjusting to such a radically different culture. Yes. Actually, that's interesting. He's reminding me of something that for a number of years, I've been interested in the viewpoints of others as to what they think of Americans. Well, these were short videos in part that you can see on YouTube asking people in different countries, Japan, France, England, Germany, Italy, Russia, even Canada, what they think of Americans. It's very interesting. I don't think it, the stuff that they like about us doesn't matter, but it's what they find difficult or hard about us that is really interesting. And sometimes it's surprising that so many different peoples think the same thing about Americans. I'm just mentioning one thing, our arrogance. They see Americans as being very, very arrogant, whether it's a Japanese person saying this or Italian. And there are many other things too. Actually, I might even talk about this at the yearly meeting. It's kind of an eye-opener. Even for me, you know, traveling a little bit that I've done going abroad kind of opens up your eyes too as to looking at yourself as belonging to one particular nation. The United States is only, what, some 5% of the world's population, 4 or 5%, and yet somehow we often don't think of it that way. My son spent 14 years in Asia. That kind of changed his view of the state somewhat. When he came back, it was culture shock again to him. It can be a good eye-opener, traveling <laughs> abroad. I mean, if you're not doing sightseeing, but actually talking to people and meeting folks, it's getting a different feel for how things are done. You do have to look at people's interests, too. For instance, they often complain about our militarism. And I agree that our militarism, that our militarism is bad, but they, they rely on our militarism. You know, they don't have armies because they figure we have an army and they expect our army to act on their behalf. So there's hypocrisy on both sides, or there can be. I mean, I think that neither side, we shouldn't have the army either, but that is why they don't feel they need one. I think that's a secondary thing for many of them, though, in terms of what I'm aware of. One thing about Americans, we do have a lot of fear that other people don't have, and yet, you know, we're the most powerful military nation in the world, and yet we don't seem to have enough weapons. Each year we keep on increasing military budgets by billions of dollars, and it's that, what can I say? I don't want to get into politics now, though, but there are these issues that do come up. Oh, I wanted to mention something else here. Well, I grew up 
with the expression for God and country, and they were sort of like 50-50 there. I think too often, even though it was 50-50, what the country said maybe mattered more than what God might be saying. That was something in my younger years. And I did want to get to something else here because I forget who was mentioning this about how these draft boards would quote the Bible to say that you should allow yourself to be drafted. In the book of Acts in chapter 4, after Peter and John have been arrested in the temple, they're in front of the Sanhedrin, the government council. They're asked what they've done and why they've done it. And, and uh, you know, in terms of there was a, a cure. In chapter 4, they couldn't say anything in opposition to the miracle they had performed. But if you go down to verse 17, but to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, they called the apostles, the two of them, and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking above what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. So in this case, it sounds clear that what God may be asking might be something that the government that of whatever country we're in would come second. And we as Christians should follow God. Anything else on this passage? I kind of think this is a very important little story, pericope, that had happened here. It really says something, but it doesn't get explained the way it should. Although, again, Quakers, if you, know, you read their journals and other writings, I think they got it right here. Their interpretation is right, as, as I've been trying to explain here. Uh, now we're getting to the Sadducees, getting all the bad guys now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to him and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married and, when he died, left no children. And the second married her and died, leaving no children. And the third likewise. None of the seven left children. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the story about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Okay, Sadducees. This is another religious political party. Basically, you're thinking of the party that the chief priests and the priests in the temple would be involved in. And like I was saying, in order to keep their position, they in some ways may have had to compromise some things with the Roman government. But these guys were in charge. And it's important to remember, too, that Israel basically was a theocracy. There wasn't this real separation between religion and secular world. 
the law of Moses was both a religious law and a civil law. It comprised both things. And that's kind of forgotten by people, I think. Now, this is a very hypothetical situation the Sadducees are making here. I can't imagine this poor woman marrying seven people. <laughs> the other thing, too, is here, they say, I'm looking for the verse here. Yes, even in verse 18, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. And here they're creating this hypothetical situation, which implies a resurrection. So already you know that there's some kind of hypocrisy going on here. They were trying to trap Jesus. Absolutely. And get him into this division in Judaism between the Pharisees and Sadducees about this particular point. I think it's also interesting, which is a point I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about, beginning with verse 24, when Jesus starts saying, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Yeah, and angels... So, uh, would be spirits. Yes, so often you find so many Christian denominations looking for a physical kind of resurrection that is just assumed in their theology, but they're kind of ignoring what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he talks about our bodies die like a seed goes into the ground, but what comes out after is something very different. I think it's just very hard for us to think of ourselves as being spirits only, and yet somehow that's better than the only thing we've been <laughs> acquainted with all our lives is our physicality. Well, Jesus taught that God is a spirit, and presumably where God is in heaven is a spiritual place and not a physical place. Even in the Lord's Prayer, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I can say from my experience that I don't think God's will is always being done on earth. But if it's being done all the time in heaven, then it sounds like a better place. The other thing, too, at the end here, at verse 26, Jesus is saying here, as for the dead being raised, he points out how God refers to himself in the present tense as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had passed away before. And the implication is here that they are somehow alive still, and that he is a God of the living, these living spirits, the most important leaders, some of them. He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. I wonder if we can just go to 1 Corinthians 15 and just look at that little passage. If you go to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians verse 35, Paul says here, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike. But there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's Jesus. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are, are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. I can read more, but I think you all can just read that passage. It makes it very clear here that what's being talked about in the final resurrection is a spiritual body. And yet so often you'll find arguments between different Christians as to physical bodies that the coming of Jesus has to do with some kind of physicality which friends have never accepted. I should say traditionally, originally. That's not the case today, I know, with evangelical friends. Well, Jesus said, Fear not he that kills the body, but rather fear him that kills the soul and spirit. Jack, what they saying to me, I think this is what made the first Quakers so uncompromising and so powerful in their preaching. They really believed in a resurrection, a final resurrection, that wasn't just a hypothesis, but a reality for them. It didn't matter if you tortured them, put them in prison. They knew there was something greater. Yes. I should say here in that passage we were reading in 1 Corinthians, it mentions glory, the glory of one body. Glory. This word, the Greek word, really has several meanings. One meaning is radiance or brilliance, splendor. Another meaning is the word opinion, actually. A third meaning is a translation of the Hebrew Shekinah or Shekinah which meant the manifested presence of God. So, especially the first and third meanings I've given here, whenever you see this word glory in English, unless they're translating the doxa more specifically, you should think that perhaps this word means radiance, splendor, brilliance, that sort of sense, you know, light. Or on the other hand, it can be a translation of the Hebrew word Shekinah, which is actually the manifested presence of God in someone, like in, in Jesus, or if it becomes apparent to us in seeing the glory of God, having this experience of a manifested experience of God's presence. So this word glory, I think it's important to think of those two meanings, the first one and the third one I gave here, as being very important. It really helps understand the passage better if you can see which meaning in English is meant by that word doxa. Actually, we just had that word glory in 1 Corinthians. Let me just go back to that. In verse 41, one glory of the sun, one brilliance, light blender of the sun, another of the stars. In that case, we're talking about that radiance, that splendor, the brilliance. But so often, especially in the Gospel of John, over and over again, when the word glory is used there, it refers to the Shekinah or Shekinah. I've seen both pronunciations. 
it's referring to the almost physical kind of presence of God that becomes apparent, epiphany of God, a real sense of God's presence. And that's also the glory. I don't know if I could quickly find one. I'm blanking out on where in Romans uh, Paul refers to the God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God, of the manifested presence of God in the face, in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm just roughly giving you what this is saying, and that we have this brilliance, this glory of God, even in our own vessels, in our own bodies. But that's there. This is the Shekinah, the Shekinah, and in many other places. Henry, I keep in front of me several different translations, and in both of Good Speed and today's English version, the Good News Bible, it uses the word beauty. And I'm thinking maybe that is. In what sense? Where? For doxa, what these others have as glory. Uh, beauty is aesthetic. But these other contexts show something much more of power rather than just something that we admire. I've never seen this word translated as beauty. To me, it doesn't mean beauty. Let me look the word up right now, see what my New Testament dictionary here says. Well, we got about five, six columns of meanings here. All right, I'll just read the main headings here. One, the condition of being bright or shining brightness, splendor, and radiance. Two, a state of being magnificent, greatness, splendor. Three, honor as enhancement or recognition of status or performance. Fame, recognition, renown, honor, prestige. Four, a transcendent being deserving of honor, majestic being. Actually, I, I don't see what the reference is that I was just mentioning in terms of the Shekinah. And there's too much to go through here at the moment. Anyway, it's getting late. There's a lot more that can be said about resurrection. And I mean that, that we haven't touched on here because it's not mentioned in this passage. Okay, uh, we'll start again on the next section next week. All right, I hope everyone has a, a good week. Okay. Thank well, you, Henry. Right. Thank you. Thank it's you. nice, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Good night. Bye, everybody. Keep within, and when they say, look here or look, there is Christ, go not forth, for Christ is within you. And those who try to draw your minds away from the teaching inside you, are opposed to Christ. For the measures within, and the light of God is within, and the pearl is within you, though hidden. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from George Fox's 19th Epistle in 1652. The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's work can be found at paulettemeyer.com.